It is a Friday morning. You know what time it is. Uh, that means the Big Daddy Liberty Show is on your radio waves. Syndicated, of course, from High FM. This is the podcast that will then be available later on in the day. Welcome to it. My name is Big Daddy Liberty. And uh, yeah, we have an interesting show today as we look at Broadly speaking, um, economic recovery, you know, what should that look like? Uh, I'm sure most South Africans are at a point now where we're wondering, uh, you know, what, what, what to expect um, and, and really what will build a, a country uh, economically. So we're going to have that conversation with my major guest at 9.20 this morning. That's, of course, John Endres, who is the... Uh, Chief uh, of Staff, excuse me, at the Institute of Race Relations, who released a very interesting paper uh, this week, basically outlining what they call the easy steps to getting uh, the the economy up and running once again. So I'm going to have that conversation with him and basically juxtapose the two visions, I think, that have been presented in the public for economic recovery. One from government, which details a plan, a three-phased plan, which I'll get into after the break, and of course, the IRR's uh, alternative proposal. So you can look forward to that conversation at 9.20 today. Um, If you're just joining us, welcome to it. This is the Big Daddy Liberty Show, the podcast, syndicated here on Chai FM. Um, Before my first break, as usual on the show, we will look at the news week that was. You know, what, what are some of the big news items that dominated headlines or things that got you interested, got you talking, for instance. So we're going to do that after the break. And um, as I mentioned, perhaps if you missed it, my major guest today is going to be John Endres, the Chief of Staff at the Institute of Race Relations, who have released a paper detailing what they consider are being uh, are the uh, easiest uh, means, excuse me, of getting the economy not only back on track, but they say to a 7% growth rate. Oh my, would we not want that as South Africans? So let me take my first break and I'll see you after these short messages. All right, guys, welcome back to the Big Daddy Liberty Show, the podcast edition here on Chai FM. Uh, again, you know, I, I'm going to hop straight into it because I think it's been a, a week where certain issues have dominated the headlines, but others have been lost, I think, in the noise, for instance, of what was the, the top issue in my, in, in my uh, view, which is the announcement, of, obviously, of not only level two uh, restrictions, which eased the previous uh, restrictive regime of levels three, four, and five, but particularly unbanned uh, alcohol and tobacco. Of course, things got lost in the noise of that, with people, you know, celebrating the faux um, freedom. And I I call it faux freedom because really these are freedoms that should never have been restricted in the first place. They had no rational basis. Um, But, you know, nonetheless, you know, people celebrated this and we we sort of lost some of the other issues that are happening at the moment, mostly because they're not happening in, you know, big centres and big towns. Uh, I I have in mind, of course, the, the tiny... A town of Mtualume, which is south of Durban in uh, KZN. You know, here's a, here's a town and a community really that is reeling with, uh, you know, let me just open my notes here, but it, it's, it's effectively reeling with what is now 15, is it 15 cases of missing people, uh, excuse me, 14 reported cases of missing people in that part of the world. And, you know, it, it's, it's, it's been... Uh, alleged or put forward 
including by the police, by the way, that you know that there could very well be a, um, a a serial killer in the area. And so far as five bodies uh, were, were found um, over the past uh, couple of weeks, uh, arrests were made. In fact, two arrests were made by the South African Police Services. Uh, with the one suspect seen as the prime suspect, if anything, later committing suicide in police custody. Now, obviously, this has frustrated a community which is incredibly worried about, you know, the, the, what's happening. I mean, if you have 14 people missing in a community over a very short space of time, over a few months, and, you know, five bodies being found in quick su- succession, you know, the fear that is obviously gripping the community has a lot of people worried as to whether policing in the area is even effective. Um, I mean, to their credit, I know the police have uh, put together a special team that will be looking into this, but, I mean, <clears throat> the fear and the concern now comes after the, uh, the person seen as the chief suspect in all of this uh, commits suicide. You know, like, how does he take his secrets to the grave if he was involved in this? Because, of course, one has to use the word of uh, this being an allegation at this point or ha- things ha- uh, these uh, allegations having been made against him, excuse me. Uh, but, but it does bring into question, you know, uh, what's happening in our communities across the country. I mean, we're, we're currently in the month of August, which is seen as Women's Month. But in reality, you know, how, how protected are South African women in this country, you know, how many of these incidents are happening that we are not aware of because they're not maybe reported widely in the newspapers? In fact, even my, you know, in my doing my research on this, I had to go to very specific newspapers, you know, Isolezwe, the Zulu Medium newspaper, out of KZN, because this story has barely broken, uh, you know, the national news cycle, which is a little odd to me because it does seem as though, you know, when you have a case of 14 reported missing people in the space of a few months, in a very small town, by the way, Mtualume is a very small town, and five bodies having been found in very, you know, rather short succession, that speaks to me as, you know, as almost, um, you know, as almost dealing with the case of, you know, almost like a serial killer to an extent. Um, But what I really, sort of what struck me the, the most about this one is how we've relegated people because of poor policing and really a society where, you know, we're not safe as citizens, we've relegated people to having to deal with these issues alone, effectively, where the state would much rather invest oodles amount of resources in policing, for example, an asinine lockdown ban on alcohol and cigarettes and all these other things that we saw under, you know, the more restrictive lockdowns. They, they would rather and had rather invested heavy policing resources in that nonsense as opposed to doing what is actually required by communities across this country, which is to protect our lives, our liberty, and really our property rights as citizens from the poorest to the rich. So there's something fundamentally wrong and skewed uh, when, I, when I sort of read the story. I was like, the, 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 you know, uh, and what basis would you as a community member perhaps in Mtualume feel as though the policing priorities in your neighborhood are geared to your needs as a, as a community? And clearly not, insofar as I don't think you would feel they're, they're geared towards your community. Because there was a very interesting line in some of the newspapers that I read where the community basically said, almost recognizing the failure of policing, said, you know, I think it's, they, they thought, at least, excuse me, let me quote them properly, that they ought to take their own safety into their own hands. Now, I don't, I'm not necessarily against that, 
but also, you know, that comes with the danger of potentially vigilante behavior. So again, it's something that police has to really take note of because I don't think people are... There is a, 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 an ever-shortening tolerance by South Africans for poor policing, and we're seeing that. We're seeing that. Whether you live in the Western Cape, uh, Gauteng, wherever in the country, there seems to be a growing... Uh, or re, re, excuse me, a shortening of tolerance for poor policing. It's worth noting, dear listener, because I think as we head into a, an economy that is absolutely decimated with more people having lost their jobs and what I would argue will be likely a rising crime rate because more people are quite desperate, really, um, to subsist, it begs the question of what law and order will look like in our country when this happens and whether the police really are up to the task. In addition, of course, to there being a need for the state to be up to the task generally of freeing the economy so that things get back not only on track, but we get on a growth trajectory. And that's the conversation we're going to have, I suppose, after the break. Because, again, for me, I'm really worried about this. Because on the one hand, you have poor policing, and on the other, you saw excesses by the state in terms of uh, policing and putting military on the streets. As I quickly give you a, an update on the Collins Causa case. Collins Causa, of course, being the gentleman, 40-year-old gentleman from Alexandra, who in the first sort of week of the lockdown was murdered, allegedly murdered by the South African military, the Defence Force. As someone who was chilling in his yard, minding his own business, and the, the state, through the, the military entered his yard and beat this man to death, allegedly. With, of course, the latest being the military ombudsman, of course, um, uh, finding this week in its, in its report that the soldiers who were involved in this incident had actually acted improperly. And the question now becomes, will there be justice? Will there be justice? Because I know his family, um, and you know, uh, please God, I hope there will be justice, because I know his family have taken this matter to, to court, not only as a criminal matter, but also as a civil one as they look for justice in a matter which really saw a South African, someone like you and I, being beaten to death allegedly at the hands of the South African government. That's the kind of stuff we used to see, you know, willy-nilly under apartheid, and it's happening today. It cannot be. It cannot be. So I'm going to be watching that one again because those are the two things that really dominated my, my thinking um, uh, over this week in terms of what was in the news cycle. And these are the sort of stories that don't now break you know, into the, 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 the mainstream in, in, in as wide a term. And they got buried you know, in the celebrations for alcohol and cigarettes. Come on, guys. There's something we need to do better in terms of following stories in this country and caring about each other as South Africans. Anyway, let me take my break, guys. Let me take my ad break. And uh, after the break, in conversation with John Andrews from the Institute of Race Relations. We're back on air. This is the Big Daddy Lips to show the podcast, of course, which is syndicated here on High FM and hopefully on other radio stations too. Remember, the podcast of the show will be available uh, at 1 p.m. on Friday going forward. You'll find it on all your favorite podcasting sites, Spotify, Apple, uh, Iono, and YouTube, you name it. Um, just look out for the podcast. Uh, we were just establishing my guest on the line. I can see he's on the line now. Let me just welcome him onto radio. John, good morning. You're on the Big Daddy Liberty Show. 
Good morning, Sichle. How are you doing? Excellent. Very good. Um, I'm just going to try and raise your levels, John, just for a moment. Um, but John, of course, is the Chief of Staff at the Institute of Race Relations. Uh, the Institute of Race Relations having released this week a very interesting paper uh, that basically argues for the need, rightly of course, for growth and recovery after this uh, lockdown period, uh, recognizing the nature of, um, or the, the decimated nature of the South African economy. Um, John, let me, let me just go straight to it. And, you know, you guys make a very interesting claim in this paper, which I'm going to get to now. Um, but essentially, the, the thrust of it being, it's very possible for South Africa, in a very cheap and cost-effective way, to sort of get to economic growth levels that could be as much as 70%, excuse me, 70%, oh my, um, <laughs> levels of 7% by the end of the decade. Um, John, I'm going to get into that claim, but let me take two, maybe even three steps back. Um, you know, government has also released its own, uh, I'll call it, you know, um, uh, reconstruction and growth uh, policy document, uh, you know, arguing that it has three distinct phases and, you know, the usual, uh, it was dressed in the usual government, uh, you know, uh, lingo. Um, but it, it seemed, John, and this is what I want to put to you, it seemed as though when they released it, South Africans just seemed to say, blah, you know, like, why should we trust this? We, we've never really, even before the lockdown, seen you guys uh, grow this economy. We entered the lockdown in a recession. Mm, that's right. And uh, I think what, we, what we're seeing at the moment is a kind of planning season. So, you know, all and sundry are publishing their plans. Everybody's trying to come up with ways to get us out of the crisis that we find ourselves in at the moment. And of course, uh, two of the most prominent plans were published in July, one by the ANC, one by the Business for South Africa Business Alliance, which is uh, big business effectively. And since then, we've seen more and more plans also coming out. But what we observed is that these plans uh, share certain commonalities, which we think mean that these plans won't work. And what they share is that they all talk about social compacts, where business, government and civil society have to come together to find a solution. We hear about creating employment schemes, using subsidies, reindustrializing, uh, using infrastructure spending, and investing in the green economy. And, you know, I think these proposals are all very well-intentioned um, because they do want to create growth, but ultimately I think they will fail. And one of the reasons why I can say that is because all of those aspects which I mentioned just now are in the current growth plans, but they were also in the new growth path document which the Economic Development Department released in 2010. So we haven't changed our plans in the last 10 years, um, and we're in a deep hole. We, we were already in a deep hole before the COVID crisis, and uh, things have only gotten worse. And we think we need a, a, a different approach. We need to look at this with fresh eyes. Uh, absolutely. And I want to take uh, just a few minutes, please, just for the benefit of the listeners in particular, um, maybe just undressing... Uh, some of these the, these talking points that government often puts forward, and you know not only government, but government, big business, and really labour, as you mentioned it, uh, of of their particular vision of what a recovery uh, strategy looks like. It often involves big spending, as you mentioned. You know, the the, the buzzword is often you know infrastructure spending. We often hear, um, and indeed, the the plan that I'm I'm referring to in particular, uh, released by government a, a, a couple of weeks ago which we're still waiting for the meat and potatoes of, was the state's economic, quote, economic reconstruction and recovery plan, close quote, uh, which was the government's economic recovery pro, uh, proposals that were made at NEDLAC. Um, 
and they set out these weird, uh, you know, almost in, in real government thinking, yeah, you know, somehow things work in phases. But it sets out these three phases of, uh, um, you know, engage and preserve as, as level <laughs> phase one. Number two, recover and reform. And uh, phase three, develop and transform. Now, John, when I read this, I said to myself, <laughs> no. As usual, government, this is short on detail, it's long on rhetoric, uh, and it's dressed yeah. in PR words, really. I mean, it was filled with things like, you know, it'll have a value proposition on this, <laughs> and it'll leverage on that. John, come on, surely we need yeah. more meat and potatoes now, as citizens, as to what recovery looks like. We do. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes you do see specific uh, proposals in these plans, but uh, often you have to shake your head at what they are. And one of those proposals, I think, as part of the infrastructure plan, was to convert government buildings into green buildings and to you know, empower communities to do this upgrading work themselves. And it's, it is such a, I don't know, such a, it feels like such a helpless idea almost. Mm. You know, that they're trying to come up with something that will work. And this is the best they can come up, can up, can come up, can come up with, mm. which is uh, very strange. And I think, yes, you're right. It's long on rhetoric. Uh, many of the proposals haven't been properly costed yet. Uh, but to give you one example, the, the business proposal, the B4SA uh, proposal, was costed at 3.4 trillion rand sure. over, over three years, which is just an absolutely unbelievable <laughs> amount of money. And um, I really wonder where that money is going to come from uh, in the conditions uh, that we currently find ourselves in. But I want to jump into that for a moment, John, um, because it seems as though that, that does seem to be the theme of what dominates mainstream thinking in, in, let's call it in the finance and economics world around you know, macroeconomic policy, issues of recovery economically, etc. There does yeah. seem to be a, a, a... And again, it cuts across both big business, big labor, and the state. The idea that you, you can spend your way out of trouble. Indeed, even if it means racking up massive debt um, and running up massive deficits, you can definitely spend your way, they'll have us believe, um, out mm. of, of a crisis. Uh, you know, for instance, the, the, the labor unions, that's uh, FEDUSA, COSATU, um, I can't think of the other one, also put out their paper basically calling for a trillion rand uh, worth of um, stimulus spending to get us out of this debt. And it does beg the question, who pays for this? And where does this money come from? Mm. And what happens if it doesn't succeed? Who gets saddled with the debt? Yeah, well, exactly. Um, so that, that's also one of the, the big issues we have with these plans, which is, as, as we said, very, very, they are very, very expensive. Um, but they impose the burden of that spending ultimately on citizens. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if we do try to spend our way out of trouble, um, it means we'll either have higher taxes or higher debt or higher inflation if we print money or outright dispossession, which means, you know, government will take things like, for example, land or pensions and, you know, just use those to, to, to try to spend its way out of trouble. And we think it, it simply won't work. You know, this, the spending approach is... Uh, is futile. We need government to do less, not more. Absolutely. Now, before I get to your particular interventions, um, which I think you, you quite rightly uh, summarized as being, if we juxtapose it to the state at least, uh, yours being a cheaper, quicker way to get things going versus the state, which is cumbersome and really rather expensive insofar as uh, the big spending, big debt, big regulations. Um, the, the other one area I just wanted to quickly uh, jump on with you is, you know, surely... The one thing I, I, I found a, a bit odd, John, 
we, we hear the states almost speaking in very lofty terms around the state will do this, the government will do that, we'll set up a committee to do this. The, 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 there seems to be a great emphasis on uh, cr- the creation of bureaucracies. And for me, and anybody who might be listening to this, they might be thinking, but hang on, we've seen what state bureaucracies generally look like, both mm. in terms of the government itself, which has grown and ballooned in size, and you know, linked to that, you know, yoked to that is, you know, state-owned enterprises, which are loss-making entities, It also continue to grow in size and in their, their voracious hunger for state funds. Mm. Let me ask you a direct question. If we see the states heading down the direction of state-led uh, uh, growth, or excuse me, correction, state-led interventions in the name of recovering the economy, do we, is it re, can a South African reasonably foresee themselves, um, you know, sorry, I got trapped by my own sentence construction there. Let me rephrase that. Does the state uh, have the capacity, John, to really recover this economy um, through a state-centric uh, uh, approach like that? Is it actually a reasonable thing to believe that politicians can do this? I think we, we don't have a snowball's uh, chance in hell of doing that. Uh, you know, just given the track record of the of the uh, ANC government over the past years, uh, the the amounts of inefficient uh, allocation of resources, the amounts of money that get lost, the amount of money that gets stolen, is uh, just so it, it boggles the mind how how much money has been lost and how badly it has been spent, and to think that you know throwing more money at the problem will make the problem go away, I think is is looking at it the wrong way around. I think it's just going to make those problems worse. Um, in addition to being a drag on the economy. All right. Um, I'm going to play devil's advocate one more time here, John, before I really get into your plan. And and forgive me if, uh, you know, you really want to get into your stuff. But um, I must play devil's advocate because I know there'll be people who say the following. Oh, but John, they'll say, um, you know, uh, of course we need the state to get involved. In fact, what we need now are politicians who will do things like expropriate without compensation. Indeed, this crisis has opened up that door for us to do that. You know, we need the state to actually expropriate property without compensation. We need things like the national health insurance. Um, and of course, we need to double down on race-based legislation because you saw who were the biggest victims, John, of uh, this lockdown, they'll say. It was mostly black South Africans. So of course, we need to double down um, on race-based legislation where the winners and losers will be in, you know, the former will be black, of course, who are the winners. And really, whites can be losers because, you know, they can, white monopoly cap- capital can take more of a knock. Um, they can afford more of a knock. Uh, John, how would you respond to this? Because this is clearly how government thinks. Yeah, uh, so my approach would be that uh, in order for the nation as a whole to get richer, which will also make individual South Africans richer, we need to produce value. You know, we need to think about productivity and, you know, how much value each person can produce in South Africa. And the policies we currently have, the ones that you just mentioned, are precisely policies that get in the way of value production. These are things that will not allow us to become wealthier as a nation. On quite the contrary, they'll make us poorer as a nation. And that is, I think, maybe the most contentious part of the the growth plan that we published. Uh, We name three bitter pills, which we think the government will need to swallow if, if if it wants the economy to grow. And the first one is a very firm commitment to property rights. And that means abandoning pet projects like expropriating land without compensation. It means abandoning the idea of prescribed assets. And it also means abandoning the idea of nationalizing the healthcare system. 
Now, those things will really get in the way of, of producing value, of attracting investment, and of making uh, the economy grow. The second thing that we call end for two is uh, race-based policies. So we think that BE and affirmative action also get in the in the way of growth uh, for companies. I think many black-owned businesses uh, find them to be a burden unless they're doing business with the government, and uh, certainly white-owned businesses do as well. And that is not to say that you know we don't have a problem that needs to be fixed in South Africa. We do clearly. You know we've got this sky-high unemployment. We've got massive levels of poverty. We've got lots of people who don't really see prospects for themselves in this country and in this economy. Um, and by some estimates, about 85% of the black population do not benefit from BE policies. Mm -hmm. And they are being left behind and are being hurt by these policies. That's why we think they should be scrapped. We must find better ways of helping uh, the poor to get out of poverty, to find jobs, and to make better lives for themselves. The third bitter pill that we list is a very wide-ranging liberalization of the labor market. So at the moment, we think uh, that employers hesitate before employing new staff because they know that uh, new staff can be a liability. Um, it can be difficult to scale up uh, or scale down the business in response to changing demand. And so employers are cautious and conservative. And what we would like is for employers to feel very free to employ people. Uh, you know, give them a chance, even if it's at, at, a, at a low wage, even if it is you know, on a short-term contract or at the risk of losing that job if the economy contracts again, at least get people into jobs in the first place. That's very, very important. Um, and for that also, we would uh, oppose the minimum wage because we think it is more important for people to have a chance to get a job, even if it is a low-paying job, than not to be given that chance because the minimum wage is too high. Absolutely. Now, John, you guys say something very interesting in the report, which I wanted to speak to, which is, you know, the, the idea underlying all these elements, really, of this plan is what South Africa needs, you argue, which is more than anything else, it's economic growth. Do you want to maybe talk to me about that? Because, you know, a unionist might say, oh, uh, of course you guys will say economic growth, but it'll be jobless growth, they might say. But how would you respond to that? And really, why is economic growth important? Yeah, so this, the idea of jobless growth is a myth. Um, the problem we've had is too little growth in South Africa, and that's why our unemployment rate isn't coming down. But there was a period in the mid-2000s where we benefited from uh, somewhat better policies and a favorable uh, economic climate internationally, where we did hit quite high growth rates, you know, around 5% or so. And that was the period where unemployment came down in South Africa. And of course, that is what we need to replicate. We need to hit higher growth rates in order to bring unemployment down and you know, help these millions and millions of people who are currently stuck with our prospects. Hmm. All right. I'm in conversation, if you're just joining us, with John Endres from the Institute of Race Relations. We're talking about the growth and recovery document. Uh, you know, this is a strategy to hashtag get SA working, they say. Now, this is a fantastic document. I've just gone through it. I really encourage you to read it. It's on their website. That's irr.org.za. Just look under their report section. That's the growth and recovery stra strategy to get SA working. I'm still in conversation with them. I'm going to take a quick ad break. After the break, I look, we, we go into the report with a little bit more uh, detail. So we can find out what some of these innovative ideas the IRR have up their sleeve. Welcome back to the Big Daddy Liberty Show. I am Big Daddy Liberty, your classical liberal for street fighting. Oh, excuse me, 
Street Fighter for Classically Liberal Ideas. Oh, my goodness. It is a Friday morning indeed. Um, it is Erev Shabbos, so good Shabbat to everybody who's maybe joining. I am in conversation with John Endres, who is the Chief of Staff at the Institute of Race Relations. They've released a very interesting uh, report, a, an alternative vision, if you will, for getting South Africa not only back on track after this lockdown, but also to actually grow the economy. It's a document entitled Growth and Recovery, a strategy to get uh, South Africa working. I am in conversation with John right now. John, you know, in the last sort of eight minutes that we have, I really want to just, you know, touch on each of the headings uh, that you have in this report that I think, you know, warrant a, a, a conversation. And I then encourage everybody to just read the paper uh, online. Uh, you, you guys basically make it quite clear here that there is a desperate need to attract direct investments to get the growth rate up. Um, do you want to maybe quickly talk to this and the issue of property rights once again? Yeah, um, so we think that there's a, actually a big opportunity for South Africa here. Um, and the reason why we say this is that uh, if we look at the global environment, we see very high levels of stimulus in the developed nations. And we see that uh, returns and yields are hard to find worldwide. So investors are scanning the world. They're looking for places where they, can, where they can get good returns on their investments. And if we could make a case for South Africa to be one such place, then we think it would be very possible for us to attract investment. But for that to happen, of course, the framework conditions have to be right. And investors have to be certain that they're not going to lose their investments because of some, some, some form of expropriation uh, or you know, insecurity about property rights. And that is why we link those two ideas. We say, you know, you have to guarantee property rights. You have to make sure that investors uh, know that they will be able to get a return on their investment and keep their, their assets as well. They're not going to lose them uh, to the government. And then you make an important point here, because you know, a lot of people go, oh, well, there they go again, you know, trying to say that the state has no role to play and that it should be uh, the laissez-faire market economies, as, as we often hear detractors say about you guys. But really, you guys actually say, no, there is a role for the state, uh, state where you say uh, creating an effective state and a competitive investment climate. Don't I maybe just quickly unpack that? Um, yes, yeah, so... I mean, we've had we've heard similar messages from the government as well. Um, so that the where, where the rhetoric used to be all about the developmental state um, just a couple of years ago, we are now hearing talk about the desire to have a capable state. And of course, um, that is something that I think the DA had as part of its policy platform for quite a long time. Um, I think the ANC is now also adopting it. Uh, and of course, it is a very important thing. You know, the the state uh, has a major role in the economy. Um, and in the lives of ordinary people, and where it does not fulfill that role effectively or, you know, fairly, uh, citizens suffer. And that's where we, we, we say what is necessary is to make the government bureaucracy a lot more efficient, uh, to uh, overcome rigid labor laws, and also to undo the, the excessive red tape which we've got. We need to simplify the citizens' and businesses' interactions with the state. Now, John, this is where you won me over in this document, and really, it, it it spoke to the what I think is the quintessential difference between your approach here and the state's approach, which is you guys say that we actually need to create an entrepreneur-friendly economic climate. Now, this juxtaposes with what the state has been doing, which is you know focusing on big business, big labor, and of course itself. Do you want to maybe just really unpack that and the importance of an entrepreneur-friendly economic climate? Yes. So. 
the government finds it difficult to engage with small businesses. Um, and I think it's because of the ease of engagement that government often prefers to interact with big business. Now, with big business, you have a, a few parties that you need to interact with, uh, maybe, I don't know, 40 or 100 companies, and then you've covered most of it. But if you as the government want to interact with small business, you know, there might be 100,000. And how, how do you talk to them? And how do you how do you interact with them? It's very difficult. And that's that's why we think that government often is a bit of at a loss about what to do about small business. And there, the point we make is that really the, the, the best thing that government can do is to get out of the way. Uh, uh, small businesses uh, have enough troubles as is. Uh, in terms of finding finance, you know, securing their supply chains, uh, getting the work done if you haven't got a whole team of, of uh, professionals helping you, as large companies do, but having to do everything yourself. So as, as life in small business is quite tough. And that is where we say that to create an enabling climate for entrepreneurship, we should actually exempt small and micro businesses, as well as new startups from all labor regulation. We would say, you know, guys, go out and employ people. Find the people that you need. Employ them without uh, having to uh, worry too much about the red tape. But the main thing is to get people into work. We also think that the government should actually turn a, a blind eye to small entrepreneurs who currently might not be 100% uh, compliant with all regulations. Rather, let them build their businesses. Let them grow until they become more and more integrated into the formal economy, at, what uh, at which time you can then regularize their status. Um, and we have a few other proposals, but in essence, the, the the point we're making is that we need to increase our economic freedom rankings, which are a sort of an encapsulated form of expressing uh, a business-friendly climate. And in those rankings, we've been dropping. So in 2000, we were at a rank of about 47 out of about 150 countries, and we're now ranked 101st. That was in, in 2017. So our economic freedom has been declining quite severely over the last 20 years or so, and we need to get it increasing again. We need to be economically free. Absolutely. John, I'm pressed for time, but I do want to squeeze this in, which is, you know, mm -hmm. um, a, a you guys basically, you know, there is a need, excuse me, to broaden and, of course, speed up economic participation. Now, when you say this, you know, most South Africans gravitate towards, towards what we know, which is, you know, BEE um, and employment equity policies, which are, of course, race-based. But you guys make a different argument, don't you? Yeah, so we, we also favor empowerment, um, and we also see a role for the state in doing so. Uh, we, we think that uh, having race-based procurement is harmful. Um, procurement should be based only on price, quality, and the ability to deliver. But we also do uh, think that giving people the resources they need to make better lives for themselves includes things like healthcare, like education, like housing. But the proposal we make there is that these, the resources for these uh, things should not be funneled through a very large and opaque government bureaucracy, but rather put directly in the hands of citizens. So we would say if, if you uh, are, have a low income in your household, you would qualify to receive a voucher which uh, will allow you to buy uh, schooling services, educational services that is, healthcare services or even housing um, from whoever you like. And that could be you know, a government supplier, but it could be a private supplier. And we think that most people, given the choice, would probably take that voucher, that money which is in their own hands, and take it to a place where it is well spent, which will often be a private 
sector supplier. Absolutely. No, these are fantastic ideas. And of course, we've run out of time. But again, if you want to read these yourself and really um, you know, arm yourself, sharpen your own arguments around what we can do to get not only get the South African economy back on its feet, but really to a point where we're growing and we're thriving, please do head over to the Institute of Race Relations website and uh, click on the Growth and Recovery, a strategy to get South Africa working document. Uh, John, thank you very much for your time. Um, just maybe as a final word to you, um, how do we get in touch with the IRR and, and you on social media? Uh, so we're on all the social media platforms as well as online. Um, just search for Institute of Race Relations or IRR. And also consider following The Daily Friend, which is a website, uh, a news website, like a newspaper, with great analysis from some of South Africa's best columnists. Fantastic. That is John Endres, the Chief of Staff from the IRR. Major thanks to him. After the break, we wrap up the show and we look at who the Moomish of the week is. All right, guys, welcome back to the Big Daddy Liberty Show. Yo, what a week, guys. And maybe looking forward into the week and this weekend and next week, sorry. Um, you know, stay tuned to the Big Daddy Liberty Show. This Sunday, of course, um, I'll be having my usual episode of Late Nights with BDL. That's at 9 p.m. on YouTube. Look out for that. As um, I'll have a very special guest as we wrap up this news week with them and someone who will provide some great analysis for you. So look forward to that in conversation, of course, with a special guest. I won't reveal that quite yet. But um, what you've been waiting for? Uh, at the end of all podcasts, I always reveal who the Moomish of the week is this week. Hmm, this one, <laughs> this one will perhaps even make you giggle a bit because they've been Moomish of the week now, I think, twice. This will make them twice. But of course, I'm talking about the National Coronavirus Command uh, Council, you know, this, this superpower committee that has been created by the state that almost has unchecked powers unaccountable not really founded in real terms in law that we have no idea really what basis they operate on but are still here and they've made their announcement of course that they're taking us to level two lockdown and finally i suppose you know uh, have, have given us our freedoms back uh, for those who enjoy alcohol and their cigarettes. But again, n this is nothing to be celebrated. And what really irked me is the Minister for Cooperative Governance, that's Nkosazana uh, Yamini Zuma, appearing before our screens, you know, after the president, of course, you know, almost in a celebratory to tone, a celebratory tone, suggesting that, oh, you know, we, we, we're giving you your freedoms back, you know, to now enjoy uh, a drink or to enjoy a cigarette. And, you know, it was almost pitched in a tone of, you need to be grateful that we, the politicians, are doing this, you know. Without us, you just wouldn't have these freedoms. It's absolute nonsense. It is absolute nonsense. And this idea that politicians should have this power is exactly why we're in the trouble that we're in now. So they deserve Mumish of the Week for that condescending tone that they took with us, um, suggesting that freedoms that are already ours as South Africans, we should be grateful for when politicians hand them back to us after a period, a torrid few months of state repression and violence uh, against South Africans. With 300,000 people arrested in this country, people beaten on the streets, um, you know, just nearly 20 people murdered at the hands of the state under this lockdown, which still continues to this day. So they deserve Mumish 
of the week. Ugh, what a bunch of losers. Anyway, guys, thank you so much for listening to the Big Daddy Liberty Show, the podcast. Remember, this will be available in a podcast format after about 1 p.m. Uh, on Friday and available, of course, on all your favorite podcasting streams, including on YouTube and Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. I am Big Daddy Liberty. I'll see you next week on Friday again for the podcast. <laughs>